My name is Roger Juan Maldonado. I'm the president of the New York City Bar Association, and I welcome you to the uh, Leslie H. Arps Memorial Lecture. Uh, I was speaking to my very good friend, Barry Garfinkel, who is responsible for having started this lecture series about when it first started, and it was back in 1989 when Barry um, was able to get Justice Lewis Powell to deliver the first lecture. And he did so on the basis of Justice Powell and Leslie Arps having done uh, legal aid work at Harvard Law School together. Um, the way the lecture series works is that each speaker, and tonight's speaker, the Honorable John O. Newman, uh, selects their own topic. And because Barry will be introducing Judge Newman, I'm not going to step on Barry's introduction. However, I must thank Judge Newman for having selected the very important issue of sentencing reform. Uh, the, the New York City Bar Association has a long-standing commitment to federal sentencing reform. Most recently, through uh, our support of the First Step Act, which is very appropriately named because it is indeed just a first, first step towards much-needed, broader uh, criminal sentencing reform. The act, however, is noteworthy because it is the result of a very, very rare bipartisan effort. Uh, we need many more of those efforts on this topic and others going forward. But the act also serves to reduce mandatory minimum sentences and expands early release and sentence modification uh, programs. We at the City Bar will continue to press Congress to, to enact the, the full scope of legislation necessary to really address the uh, very, very dire consequences of mass incarceration as it now exists in the United States. But back to, to tonight's program. The ARPS lecture, lecture series is made possible by the gener generosity of Skadden ARPS. Leslie ARPS, in addition to his prominence at Skadden and in the legal community, also served as chair of this association's executive committee. The lecture is overseen by a committee, co-chaired by Gary Garfinkel and Scott Newsoff. And on behalf of the City Bar Association, I thank you, Barry and Scott, for all that you've done. Uh, you have been the guiding hands in this series from the outset. And uh, because of you and because of Skadden's generosity, we've been able to maintain it all these years. Please welcome Gary Garf Barry Garfinkel. Thank you. I'm extremely pleased to uh, welcome Judge, Circuit Judge Newman to our lecture series. This is our 16th Leslie Arps lecture. Judge Newman cautioned that he wants a very, very brief introduction, so I'm, here I go. Um, Prior to uh, Judge Carter's appointment of Judge Newman to the Second Circuit, uh, Judge Newman was the U.S. Attorney in the District of Connecticut, and thereafter he was the uh, District Court Judge uh, for District of Connecticut. On the Second Circuit, he was the Chief Judge for many years. And then he became and received senior status. But notwithstanding the status of senior status, he's a very active Second Circuit judge. And his subject tonight is one that has long interested him. It's captioned, what's wrong with federal sentencing? And we have Judge Newman to tell you what's wrong. Judge Newman. That was an absolutely perfect length for an introduction. I'm grateful to it. And I'm grateful to all of you for attending. You must be terribly interested in knowing what's wrong with federal sentencing uh, to attend this lecture. I'm, I, I think of this audience the way when I had some involvement in politics many years ago when we lost an election overwhelmingly. And uh, I mean overwhelmingly. And as we commiserated about the result, we said, well, 
We didn't get many votes, but we got the quality votes. So as I look out here, I think I have the quality audience, <laughs> despite, despite your number. And I understand this is being taped so that others who are curious about uh, the topic uh, can have a, a, a look at what I have to say. Uh, it's an honor to give the ARPS lecture, uh, that, uh, named for and, uh, one of the original founders of the ARPS firm, I think in what, 1948, am I right? 48 is right. I think so. Uh, and it's also an honor to follow uh, many of the distinguished uh, judges and lawyers who have uh, preceded me uh, at this podium. So the topic is, what's wrong with federal sentencing? My first reaction is to say, let me count the ways. But my time is limited, so I'm going to talk about briefly about two, two aspects of it. And... Uh, more extensively about one aspect. The first problem is uh, mandatory minimum sentences that you all are familiar with and have heard a lot about. The problem of mandatory minimum sentences is twofold. One part is well known, namely it requires judges to give very high sentences to people who probably wouldn't get those high sentences but for the mandatory minimum. And some of these are 20 years, 30 years, life. And it puts judges in a difficult position of being required to give that sentence, even though if they were freed of that restraint, they wouldn't do it. That's an awkward position to put a, a judge in. That's fairly well known. The part that is not as well known, and certainly not as appreciated, is the power that a mandatory minimum gives to a prosecutor to to put it delicately, influence, if not coerce, a guilty plea from someone who might not otherwise plead guilty. When I was a prosecutor, there were only five-year mandatory minimums. And I must say that my office did say to people, look, if you plead, we'll give you the two-year sentence. There's a separate statute that gets you two years. But if you go to trial, you're going to face the five-year mandatory minimum. I'm not very proud of having said that. but. It is what was said all the time. But it escalates when a prosecutor can say to a person who seriously wants to contest his guilt, um, we can offer you a reduced sentence, but if you go to trial, you face a 15-year or 20-year mandatory minimum. And the threat is not only in the hands of the federal prosecutor, but what is little appreciated, it's in the hands of the state prosecutor. Now, you may say, why is that? He doesn't have a mandatory minimum. But what he has is the ability to walk across the street. So the state prosecutor says to somebody who's up on a drug charge, you can go to trial on this state charge. But if you tell us you're going to trial, I'm going to walk across the street and present this case to the federal prosecutor who can bring the federal charge on the exact same facts as the state charge. And he's going to give you the 20-year mandatory minimum. So if you're a defendant thinking about getting two or three years in state court, and maybe you're innocent, but you don't want to take the chance of a 20-year sentence, you succumb to that threat and you plead guilty. And that's an aspect of mandatory minimums uh, that is really uh, very unfortunate. Now, you mentioned the, the First Step Act. And I'm delighted the Bar Association was active in the First Step Act. And I think it is a useful, as you call it, first step. But without denigrating your good efforts, I do want to take on, for just a minute, what the Act did about mandatory minimums. Because if one read the newspapers at the time the First Act was first proposed and then was signed by the President, one of the things that was celebrated for is easing mandatory minimums. And I read that, and I said to myself, really? I wonder, what did they do to ease mandatory minimums? So I looked it up. That's what lawyers do. They did two things. One was pretty good. The mandatory minimum for drug sentences used to say, if you commit a second uh, drug offense after you've committed a drug felony, you get a mandatory minimum of 20 years. 
now they changed the wording and they said it can't be just any prior drug felony it must be a serious drug felony and they define serious drug felony to mean a crime for which you got more than twelve months so that's somewhat cut down the availability of mandatory minimum that was pretty useful although i don't think it has huge effect the second thing they did and this was hailed as the reform for these people they reduced the mandatory minimum from twenty years all the way down to fifteen now i don't want to belittle the consequence of five years to a person who's doing the time it is not trivial but when you focus on the second aspect of mandatory minimums namely the threat to subject a person to a mandatory minimum if he insists on going to trial I really suggest to you that whether that threat is a 20-year threat or a 15-year threat makes no difference at all. Uh, he still is going to take the, the two or three-year uh, lesser charge and avoid the threat of the 15. So that was the, the reform on mandatory minimums. And in all honesty, I think it was rather trivial. I guess we will get data in the next two or three years how many people over the next two, three, five years uh, who would have been eligible for mandatory minima uh, under the old system are no longer eligible and it'll be interesting to see how many there are my guess is there'll be very few what we won't see are how many succumb to the threat of a mandatory minimum and pled guilty because there's no data on that nobody counts those and my guess is the threat will still be there all right I want to move on to a second aspect of sentencing and that is the abolition of parole one of the features of the Sentencing Reform Act in 1987, when it became effective, was to abolish parole. It was done for the best of intentions. It was done, as Senator Ted Kennedy, a co-sponsor of the bill, said at the time, to bring truth to sentencing. Because he said, with parole, there isn't truth in sentencing. Somebody gets a 20-year sentence. He's eligible for parole at the one-third point, generally. He gets out in seven years. Somebody else maybe gets 20 years and he serves almost all of it. So the public doesn't know whether a 20-year sentence means a 20-year sentence or means a seven-year sentence. So if we abolish parole, they will know that the time is exactly the time of the sentence, less only good time credits, one-seventh typically. That was the motivation for abolishing parole. There were two adverse consequences to that. The main one is the public didn't get it at all. The public goes to movies, watches television, goes to plays, reads the newspapers, and what they find out with sentencing, even since parole was abolished, they say, oh, this fellow got 20 years. Oh, he's going to get out in seven under parole. Nobody told them parole had been abolished. A few people know it. I don't want to overstate the case. But the public at large didn't understand it. And indeed, you will see TV shows uh, on the evening uh, programs tonight where somebody will say, oh, well, yeah, he's getting 20 years, but he'll, he'll get out in seven. They still say it. Now, why do they say it? They say it because parole is still in existence in many, many states. So they're quite right to say it because it is a prevalent practice. A few states have abolished it or limited it. But when the federal system abolished it, it only abolished it for the, what, 3%, 4% perhaps of all federal uh, crimes where, where there's a sentencing. And so with the state still having parole, the public thinks there is still parole. They're often right. And so Ted Kennedy's good intention to uh, bring truth to sentencing turned out to be an illusion. Now, what does it do for sentencing judges? I hope every federal sentencing judge in America understands that if they were to give a long sentence like 20 years, that person will do the 20 years less only good time. But I fear there are still some judges, and they think there's parole. Now, you may say, oh, how could that be? How could any judge fail to understand that there is, there's been this change. Well, let me give you an example. 
and Judge Raji, who is here, who was a district judge years ago, I think if familiar with this, will appreciate it. Years ago, there was a statute when there was parole at the one-third point that said, if a judge sentences a prisoner under a separate statute, still gives 20 years, but mentions a separate statute, the parole board has the discretion to release at any time. They don't have to wait for the one-third. Remember that? that you, I mean, I know you're very young and compared to me, but you are old enough to remember that provision. <laughs> now, so judges were saying, oh, okay, so I'm going to give an 18-year sentence to sort of have an interorum effect and let the public know we take this crime very seriously. But I'm going to mention this other statute, confident that the parole board will let him out in year two or three or something like that. At the time, I was a district judge, and I was skeptical of what was going on. So I asked the Bureau of Prisons, give me the results. Compare sentence, uh, crime to crime. How are the people subject to the one-third release date doing? How are the people subject to the day one release date doing? Here are the results. For every federal offense, the people sentenced under the lenient statute were serving more time than the people under the, under the one-third point. I mentioned this at a conference of the Second Circuit judges many, many years ago. They were astonished. They'd been giving these sentences day after day under the assumption, which was false, that they were helping the defendant and, in fact, he was getting extra time. So don't overestimate uh, what federal judges know about sentencing. I hope they all know that parole has been abolished, but sometimes when I see long sentences, I worry. All right, now I want to turn to the thing I'm most interested in talking about, and that's the federal guidelines. And in order to appreciate the federal guidelines, I need to say a little bit about how they got started, because I think the start was correct. I think the idea of guidelines was correct. I thought so at the time. When I was a district judge and there were no guidelines, if a person committed armed bank robbery, he could be sentenced anywhere from probation to 25 years. I had no statute that guided my discretion. I had no standards. I had no guidelines. I could pick anywhere from zero to 25 years. That is the only legal issue I faced where I had that much discretion with that serious a consequence. And I thought, that's not right. There ought to be some guidance here. Now, in 1974, Marvin Frankel, distinguished judge of the Southern District of New York, many of you here knew him well, published a book on federal sentencing called Law Without Order. I sometimes wonder why he didn't call it order without law. But in any event, he called it law without order. And he criticized the disparity in federal sentencing. And he gave statistics. And the dis disparities were shocking. They were heavily racial, and they were significantly geographic. Uh, people of color were getting significantly more sentences than, than whites. And disparities around the country were very serious. And he, made, he documented the case for that and said there, something ought to be done. Now, what ought to be done? He thought there should be a system of guidelines that would provide guidance, not requirements, guidance to federal judges. I was one of the few federal judges at the time who agreed with him. And a few of us met in a seminar Barry, at the Yale Law School, you'll be glad to know, and for about uh, five months developed what became the Federal Sentencing Act of 1984. And what that act did was, at Bill at that point, called for the creation of a Federal Sentencing Commission, a panel expected to be expert in their field, and we contemplated they would be people of broad experience, perhaps a district attorney, maybe a governor, maybe a mayor, maybe a public defender, and maybe a professor of penology who could bring academic expertise to the task. That's what we expected. And we expected a guideline system to be something like the parole guidelines. We were not making this up out of whole cloth. 
because at that time, when there was parole, the parole commission itself recognized that there was disparity in the way parole was being administered. They looked around the country and they said, wait a minute, our hearing examiners are making very disparate decisions on when to give parole. So the parole commission, to its great credit, says, we need guidelines. And they developed a guideline table. And it's worth looking at. And it won't take you very long. It's only three pages. And it's a grid. And it has six levels of offense severity, top to bottom. And it has four levels across of, of uh, a criminal record severity. And at the intersection, there are recommended periods of months in which the hearing officer should grant release. And there were grounds for exceptions, but it was only three pages. Very sensible, very flexible, easy to understand, easy to apply. So when Judge Frankel recommended sentencing guidelines, and I agreed with him, and we urged that the bill call for sentencing guidelines, that's what we expected. Well, we were in for a surprise. The first surprise was who the commission was. The commission was seven members, that's what the statute said, of whom three were professors. Now, I don't want to look like I'm opposed to academic contributions, particularly with Professor Barrett sitting out here, my dear friend. But three professors out of seven, I think, were perhaps two too many. <laughs> because there could have been other people, practitioners, defense lawyer, prosecutor, mayor, governor, whatever, people who brought to that task their experience from different perspectives. But instead, it was three professors out of seven. And what happened? The professors took over, particularly one, Paul Robinson, if some of you know that name or know him as a distinguished academic. They worked hard and in 1985, I guess it was, came out with the first draft. Now bear in mind, those of us who were for the system had in mind the parole guideline table of three pages. The first draft from the commission was 240 pages, plus or minus. And it was amazingly complicated. And we were appalled. We had no idea they would come out with something so complicated. There was some criticism. They pared it down a little, the second draft. And then they came out with a third draft, and it was longer. And it, wasn't, it was more detailed than the first draft, but for Paul Robinson, it wasn't even detailed enough. And having authored the idea of complexity, he then dissented because the draft wasn't detailed enough, even though it was then around 300 pages. And it's been growing ever since, around 500 pages now. Um, that was their first mistake, was coming out with something that detailed and that complicated. And before going into the specifics of what's wrong, I'll keep my eye on the time, I do want to say they got some things absolutely right, and I want to give them credit for doing it. The first thing they got right is, they tried and to some extent succeeded in lessening disparity. And that was useful. The studies that they did in the period from 1987 on showed that to some extent, not much, but to some extent disparities were being reduced. For example, before the guidelines, with tax cases that I suspect some of the lawyers in Skadden Art know something about because they probably yes, defend they people, they do, right? I, not surprised at that. Uh, around the country, tax evaders uh, were going to prison 50% of the time and getting probation 50% of the time. Now, it just can't be that the 50% that um, were not going to prison were all such admirable people that they were being rewarded for their good works. Some judges thought tax evasion deserved prison, and some judges thought it didn't. Now, reasonable people can differ whether a first-time tax evader should go to prison, but it shouldn't be 50% one way and 50% the other. And the early experience under the guidelines did ease that because the commission tended to favor imprisonment, small imprisonment, but some imprisonment for white-collar offenses. 
So I give the Commerce Commission credit, uh, and I give the, that Congress credit, because they expressed in the legislative history that they thought white-collar criminals um, should get some jail time. So there was a lessening of disparity. Um, there was also the, the abolition of parole, which, as I've said, was well-intentioned, but unfortunately led to an adverse consequence because people didn't understand uh, that it is happening. Um, now, there's a third thing they did. There had been a practice in federal sentencing before the guidelines where an offense carried a fairly low sentence maximum of, say, two years. But the offender had violated it many times, and each count carried two years. This was brought home to me when I encountered a case where a fellow had committed a violation of a two-year statute, and he had done it 11 times. The sentencing judge took 11 two-year sentences and ran them consecutively. So he imposed a 22-year sentence for a crime that nominally carries two years. The sentencing guidelines say you really can't do that. I will say they don't 100% forbid it, but they substantially eliminated that by a very elaborate formula, which I won't go into, that substantially cuts down the ability of sentencing judges to stack sentences so that they can be terribly severe. And that was a very, a very useful thing. The commission also had to uh, figure out what offense conduct do we punish? And they had two extremes. They could either say, we're going to punish whatever the prosecutor charges and gets a conviction on, and that's all. Charge crime X, you can only be punished for crime X. The other, offense, the other proposition was, no, you ought to be able to sentence for everything the guy did in the course of his criminal conduct or elsewhere. If he robbed a bank, but he also beats his wife, we're going to add for that because that's a terrible thing. And the commission said, we're not going to go to either extreme. We're going to do what they call modified real offense sentencing. We're going to focus on the offense, but the judge can also take into account matters related to the offense. So the bank robber who beats his wife the state will have to take care of the wife beating. The bank robbery court is going to take care of the bank robbery. If he carries a gun into the bank, that's part of the crime. That's going to cost him. So I thought they made a good, a, a sensible resolution of that problem. And there was debate either way to do it. Now let me come to where they went off the rails. The first thing which I've sort of suggested is they came up with this massive document of utter complexity. Uh, the judges here have seen it. I should have brought the book. It's a thick book, and it's now uh, several hundred pages. And for district judges, it requires them to make findings on all sorts of details, which normally sentencing judges wouldn't do. Very refined findings. They have to determine, was the loss 8,000 or 12,000? They have to determine, was this fellow an organizer or a leader? Instead of just saying, well, he's in the upper echelons of the enterprise, and that's going to cost him. No, they have to make discrete findings on scores and scores of details in order to decide what the sentence should be. No system in the world obliges sentencing judges to do it. There's some state judges here, my former clerk, Judge Marcus, I don't think has ever had to make precise findings on such rarefied issues as are in the sentencing guidelines. So the complexity was unnecessary, was unknown to sentencing, but it was the brainchild of Professor Robinson, and he sold it to the other commissioners. Incidentally, the impetus for the bill is interesting. The Sentencing Reform Act that called for the commission and the guidelines had two co-sponsors in the Senate. Some of you may recall who they were. Strom Thurmond, Ted Kennedy. Talk about the odd couple. Uh, but they came at it for very different reasons. <laughs> Senator Thurmond thought he was getting severe sentences. Senator Kennedy thought he was getting less disparate sentences and truth in sentencing. So they joined forces 
and jointly sponsored it. And with that sponsorship, it became very popular in the Senate. Now, in addition to the complexity, or really related to the complexity, the Commission adopted a bizarre, I call it bizarre, principle of doling out punishment. And the principle espoused again by my bete noir, Professor Robinson, was that for every increment of wrongdoing, there must be an increment of punishment. I call it the principle of incremental immorality. So for example, if somebody stole $5,000, he got X number of months. But if he stole $10,000, he got more months. Now I testified to the commission um, more than once and tried to explain to them that no criminal wakes up in the morning and says, I feel like only committing $5,000 worth of crime today, so I'll be careful to take only 5000 He probably makes a discreet judgment, do I go in and rob a bank, which is dangerous, there's an armed guard, there might be shooting, bystanders might be hurt, or do I go to a convenience store and just rob that store? He probably makes that decision. If he goes to a bank, I think he probably should get a higher sentence than if he goes to a convenience store. But if he goes to a convenience store, what does he do? He takes what's in the till. And whether the till that day has 5,000 or 10,000 is purely fortuitous. So there is no penological reason why he should get more punishment because the till that day had 10,000 rather than 5,000. Another example where this incremental immorality Dis, uh, is unfair to people is this. Take a case of fraud where a postal inspector is the investigating officer. Every mailing is a count, and every mailing can add to the amount of dollars that are defrauded. Uh, or a, a um, stock swindle, every event can add to the time. What determines how many mailings there are or how many stock transactions there are. What probably determines it is how busy the investigator is in that district. If he's in a district where he's not too busy, he may let the investigation go for several months, at which time there are a couple of hundred mailings. If he's in a busy district, he comes to the U.S. attorney and he says, look, I've already got this guy on seven mailings, that's enough, let's go. And the U.S. attorney says, fine, let's arrest him. But in one district, the loss is huge, and in the other district, it's not so big. So in the little district where the inspector is not so busy, the loss is big, and the sentencing, according to the guidelines, is very huge. Makes no sense at all. Isn't done anywhere in the world except in the federal system. It's a very, it's a very odd system. <coughs> when the guidelines first came out, the loss table had, there was a loss table that measured amounts of money and correlated sentences with amounts of money. There were 21 levels of loss. So the federal judges had to decide where in the loss table was it 110,000 or did it climb over the line and get to be 130,000? Tax fraud. I, I don't know who your clients are, Barry, but I bet none of them carefully sit down and say, I'm going to cheat on 110,000 on my taxes. I'm not going to cheat on 130. I don't think any of them go through that. I doubt, it. I doubt it, too. We agree on most things. But the sentencing guidelines make that critical. Makes no sense at all. Now, I have to, in fairness, say, not to the commission, but, but uh, to the Supreme Court, there came a point where the rigidity of the guidelines was eased because the Supreme Court made a ruling in the well-known Booker case that the guidelines, which had been mandatory, are no longer mandatory. A judge can give a sentence without the guidelines. But here's the catch. The court has also said that in imposing a sentence, every federal sentencing judge must start by calculating the guideline sentence. You can't just look at the fellow and say, I'm putting the book aside and I'll give him four years. Can't do that. He must start with the guideline calculation. If the guideline calculation says eight years, 
He can then decide to give him four years, and many do, but many do not. And what's happened is this. I'm old enough to have sentenced before the guidelines, but there are very few of us left. <laughs> Jedraji indicates to me she sentenced. And so uh, I wouldn't say she's old enough, but she's young enough to remember doing that. But there are not many of us left who have done that because 87 was the day they became effective. So many judges appointed since 1987, and that's the vast majority of federal judges, get a pre-sentence report from the probation officer, and according to the Supreme Court requirement, it calculates the guideline, and many of them stop there. And I can't say I blame them. It's convenient. It's been calculated. And they probably say to themselves, well, this guideline range represents the view of the expert body. And so who am I to impose my judgment in contradiction to theirs? Some judges are willing to, but some don't. My guess is they don't know how that sentencing range was calculated by the commission. And my guess is many of you don't either. So let me share the secret with you. The commission told us when they first put out the guidelines that what they had done to determine the appropriate sentencing length was to examine, first they said we examined 100,000 cases and we tried to emulate what the federal judiciary was doing. When pressed about it, they said, no, it wasn't exactly 100,000. We sampled 100,000, we picked 10,000. Okay, sampling is all right, statisticians do that all the time. So they picked 10,000 cases to see what was happening around the country before the guidelines. Now, what cases did they look at? They looked at cases where incarceration had been imposed. They did not look at probation sentences. Probation sentences at that time were 50% of all federal sentences. So the first thing they did was to average the cases where jail time, prison time had been imposed, giving no weight at, in the first cut to the non-jail sentences. Then somebody in the commission staff said, wait a minute, that's not quite right. So after averaging the prison sentences around the country for different offenses, they said, we'll apply a rather arbitrary discount factor, and that will make up for the fact that we only looked at sentences. I don't think 5% of the federal judges in this country know what I've just told you. They think, when, if, if, when they see that the commission said we looked at federal sentences, they think the commission was looking at the totality of federal sentences, and it wasn't so. It wasn't so. All right, so I've got to pick up a couple of other things here, and I need glasses to be sure I get them right. In order to construct a table, the commission had to decide what really matters, what really matters. And they quickly seized on two factors to give dominant weight to. One was the amount of money involved, and if it was a drug offense, the weight of the drugs in question. Now, those two factors for the commission had the virtue of simplicity. And not to be too pejorative about it, but only a little pejorative, as I've said on other occasions, what bean counters do is they count beans. It was easy to count amounts of money. It was easy to count a quantity of drug by weight. It's more difficult to assess venality, evil, bad conduct, immorality, subtle things like that. So what did they do? They first put a premium on amount of money and weight of drugs, and they constructed this loss table with 21 categories and a weight table with, I think, we're just at 36 precise quantities of weight. And then they said, well, we shouldn't go with just that. We've got to recognize that some guys are the leader of an organization and some people are mules. So we'll have a little adjustment. After we decide that the punishment should be X years because so much money was involved, 
or Y years because so much drugs was involved. Then we'll have a little add-on if you're the leader of the, of the enterprise, or a little discount if you're a mule, or if you're the girlfriend who, when the, when the drug dealer said, I'm, I'm late for the uh, meeting uh, uh, this, this evening, will you drive me to the meet? And she says, sure. And she's now a conspirator in, in a 30 or 100 kilogram case. So she gets sentenced according to the quantity. She gets a little discount because she only drove it. They had it just backwards, from, from my point of view. I think role in the offense should have been the dominant characteristic and quantity of money, quantity of drugs should have been the add-on. If I see the leader of a drug ring, I think that person should get a very serious sentence. If I see a mule crossing the border with some cocaine, but he's only a mule, I think he should get a fairly low sentence, at least first offender. Repeat offender, that's something else again. But the commission did it just backwards. They said quantity of drugs is the driving factor and money, amount of money, is the driving factor, and the rest will be adjustments. And I think they had it exactly backwards. Um, another mistake they made, I think, is the way they handle adjustments. The book, if you read it, the guideline book, has scores, probably hundreds, of adjustments. And they are finely calibrated. So if the perpetrator injures somebody in the course of the crime, obviously that should get some extra punishment. But they distinguish between slight injury, medium injury, serious injury. They don't give a district judge credit for saying, wait a minute, this fellow injured the victim. I'm going to add this up to the sentence a little bit for the injury. No, they want the judge to make findings of the degree of injury. And then there are other adjustments. They come into play a lot on a, on a case you, you've heard a lot about, child pornography. There are a lot of people sentenced for child pornography, not for producing child pornography, but for viewing child pornography. So they have adjustments. You start with a certain number assigned to the value of the offense of child pornography. Then under the guidelines, once you start with that, you go up in the table for using a computer. Well, what viewer of child pornography doesn't use a computer? That's how they view the, com that's how they view the pornography, is on a computer. You get another adjustment for sharing. Well, what viewer of child pornography doesn't share it? That's what they do. There's another adjustment for using a sophisticated means to commit the crime. And they say, oh, it's a sophisticated means. So now you may start with, let's say, a level eight or so, and then you go 10, 12, 14, 16, for a series of adjustments which are common to that crime. I don't know that the commission ever expected that to happen. I think what they did is they said, each of those separate adjustments are used by some judges to up the sentence. So they ought to count. I don't think they ever thought of them as being stacked. They certainly didn't say so in their report or in the guidelines themselves. But in fact, there is a stacking, and it went on and on. And so many people got very high sentences, even though the offense level for the base offense was fairly low. I don't think the commission expected that. Uh, since then, the commission itself has authorized some amelioration of that. But for many, many years, these uh, adjustments were stacked, and it was quite unfair. Are you looking at your watch? I'm looking your at mine. Your time is your We're time. We're all right? Okay. I just got a few more. Another mistake they made, they had to deal with mandatory minimum. I get that. The Congress had put in mandatory minimum, and the, and the commission had no choice. But the commission made a mistake. When they went to the drug table, they started with the mandatory minimum, and they prescribed sentencing levels on top. They didn't have to do that. They could have said, look, for a certain offense, the Congress says the minimum is 10 years. But we're the Sentencing Commission. We were created to exercise our best judgment of what the sentence should be. And we think, in this case, it ought to be seven years. So they would have said that. And then a sentencing judge would say, yes, I understand that they recommend seven, but the Congress says 10, so it's got to be 10. 
That would have been all right. But instead, the commission said, well, the Congress says 10, so we're going to say 12. I think that made no sense at all. They just added on top of the mandatory minimum, and I think that was a mistake. A couple of others. The commission said that if a defendant cooperates with the government, which is fairly frequent, probably read some newsworthy cases lately <laughs> where certain celebrated people have been getting discounts for cooperation, some yes, some no. But what the commission said is there will be a discount for cooperating with the government to name other people only if the prosecutor asks the judge to give you that discount. So what the prosecutor can do at the federal court is come to the defendant and say, look, if you want to get a benefit, a slightly reduced sentence, you better co cooperate and cooperate extensively. You better tell us several people. I had a case once where a fellow said he didn't get the cooperation agreement. He didn't get the discount because the prosecutor refused to make the motion. And he complained to us. He said, I gave them six names six Confederates, and they prosecuted them. But I wouldn't give them the seventh that they wanted. And we asked, well, why didn't you give the seventh? And he said, she's my sister, and I'm not going to give her up. So he didn't get the cooperation agreement from the, from the government. There was no reason for the commission to give the prosecutor that whip hand. Now, maybe they didn't understand. I attended a sentencing institute where all the commissioners were present many years ago, and there was a room full of district judges. And I asked the commissioner, why do you give the prosecutor the whip hand and say only if the prosecutor asks for a reduction for cooperation can there be one? And this commissioner, appointed by the president, serving on the commission, said, it's always been that way. We didn't do anything new. And half the judges in the room who had been U.S. attorneys laughed or cried, I don't, or both. They said, it's never been that way. We all know it. We don't understand why you don't know it. So they may have put this in in ignorance. I don't know. Or they may have put it in because the Department of Justice asked for it. I don't know the answer to that. But it's in there. And so again, the prosecutor has enormous power, similar to what he has to recommend, uh, to urge, uh, to charge a mandatory minimum. He also can say, I'll only urge the court to reduce your sentence for cooperation if you do certain things, and I'll be the judge of whether you've done enough. It used to be the prosecutor would say to the judge, or the defense attorney would start and say, Your Honor, he's cooperated. And the prosecutor would say, Well, he's done a little, but he hasn't done enough. They would present their arguments to the judge, and the judge, being sensible, would make a decision. Now the prosecutor can decide whether it happens or not. And there's one last defect. I think we're all right. Let's say you're charged with three offenses, and you have a trial, and the jury convicts you of two offenses, and they acquit you of the third. So you're the district judge, and you say to your probation officer, well, we got to calculate the guidelines. He was convicted of offense number one and two, but he was acquitted of number three. Probation officer says, uh, <clears throat> Your Honor, uh, I have to break this to you gently, but we're going to look at number three also, even though he was acquitted. Now, not only does the, do the guidelines count acquitted conduct, which I guess there's a rationale for it, because the jury, after all, said he wasn't guilty of that conduct beyond a reasonable doubt. But sentencing facts only have to be proved by a preponderance of the evidence. So for years, judges have been taking into account acquitted conduct. But what the guidelines say, the acquitted conduct counts at exactly the same formula as if he'd been convicted. No other system in the world or in the country does that. We had a case where a fellow was convicted of two counts, uh, each of which had, uh, I think it was is two years, did I write that down? Um, and then he was acquitted of the charge that carried 20 years. So if you looked at 
just the two counts on which he was convicted, the guideline range was 12 to 18 months, one year to one and a half. If you counted the count on which he was acquitted, his guideline range was between 17 and 22 years. And he got 20 years, even though the counts of conviction had a maximum of 18 months under the guidelines. Now, that just can't be right. It just can't be that when you come up for sentencing, it doesn't matter whether you were convicted or acquitted. It's got to be in your favor that you were acquitted. Disregard it? No, I'm not urging that. Judges have always taken it into account because the burden of proof, as I've suggested, is lower. But to price it as exactly the same severity as the things you were convicted of, I think, is needlessly harsh. So what's been the result of all this? Well, it's interesting. Before the guidelines, the average time served in a period before was 13 months. Average time, considering probation and early release, 13 months. After the guidelines, it went to 43 months, more than tripled. Did Congress expect that? I don't think so. But that's the result, partly due to mandatory minimum, heavily due to the guidelines themselves. And my concern is, is, is really is, is twofold. First, I'm very discouraged that the commission is not going to make any change, even though many of them have called for change privately or some even publicly. Current chairman gave a wonderful speech to the ALI a couple years ago calling for simplification. And the reason they're not going to do it is because they're terrified of the Congress. I don't want to overstate that because I, I know the commission did propose uh, lessening the crack uh, uh, to powder disparity, which was serious. They, they reduced that. And uh, although Congress early on balked at it, they ultimately went along. But let me give you an example of what the commission knows is in store for them when they go to, to uh, Congress. When the guidelines first were proposed back in the uh, middle 80s, uh, those of us in favor of it were asked to uh, do some training of judges about the new system, because it was a brand new system, and it, it, we had to explain it to the several hundred judges around the country. So a few of us were asked by the commission to run training institutes. We did that. We got within uh, a month or two of the deadline, and we said, you know, we think we've done pretty good, but if we had six more months to continue the training, we really think it would be very, very helpful. And the Department of Justice said, we can't agree to that. But here's what we'll do. If you can get the leadership of Congress to support your proposal, we won't oppose it. Well, I said, that's pretty generous of you. We'll take you up on that. So here's what we did. We had a bill to give just six more months of the old system. And here's who we got to support it. The Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader of the Senate, the minority leader of the House, the minority leader of the Senate, the chairman of both judiciary committees, and the minority leaders of both committees, of the judiciary committees. I don't think any bill in the province of criminal law had ever had such top-heavy bipartisan support of a little bill to postpone the effective date for six months. The department said, marvelous. We, we said we won't oppose it, and we won't put the bill in. The bill was put in on the floor of the Senate, and somebody, I won't say which party to be partisan, but I'll let you infer. Somebody got up and said, well, if you all want to coddle these criminals for another six months, you go right ahead, but I'm voting no. And the six-month extension was defeated two to one. <laughs> now, the commission knows that. And so they recognize that proposals, even if they're just simplification proposals, are going to be perceived as leniency proposals and are going to be shot down. I've urged the commission to come up with a punishment neutral bill, just like they talk about revenue neutral. Don't go in for, for leniency. Go in for simplification. I've given them draft of proposals that simplify it tremendously without any lowering of sentences. Let that, let that fight come separately so it can be done. But I understand why they're fearful of the Congress. I really don't, can't blame them for being fearful. 
I wish they would just take the fight on and see what happens. I wish some Justice Department would recognize this system makes no sense for all of the reasons I've given, and there are many more. So I'm very concerned that the, con that the Commission won't reform, even though they said in their very first draft, this is an evolutionary process. If you read the, the first page of the guideline, it says it's an evolutionary process. It has never evolved. It's only gotten more complicated. And the second thing I'm concerned about is not only that the Commission won't act, but that what the Commission has done is given guidelines a bad name throughout the world. I've talked to judges abroad, both abroad and here when they come here to visit, and we talk about sentencing because a lot of judges are quite interested in the topic. And as soon as we talk about guidelines, they say, well, we're not going to do guidelines. Your federal guidelines are terrible. And I say, you're right. But don't judge the guideline system by the federal guidelines. Look at the states. There are several states in this country that have come up with guideline systems, very sensible, not complicated, flexible, fair. The judges like them. The state legislatures like them. They work. Pennsylvania, Washington, Minnesota, to name a few. There are about a dozen that have very good systems. But unfortunately, the rest of the world, to the extent they pay attention to this issue, only know about the federal guidelines. They don't know about Minnesota. I don't think they know where Minnesota is. But they do know about the federal guidelines. And so the commission, by its initial guidelines and its reluctance to reform, has really given bad guidelines a bad name. I think that's unfortunate. I think Marvin Frankel was right. I supported him then, and I still support his concept. But I despair that the commission took a really good concept to provide some guidance to judges and implemented it in this way that has all the defects I've identified and a few more which I could go on, but I'm not going to. And I thank you for your attention, and if there are some questions, I'll be glad to try to answer them. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for such an enlightening speech. So you will entertain one or two questions. Any questions from anybody in the audience? Okay. Stand up. Yes. Hi, Judge Newman. You've obviously thought about this a great deal, and all your ideas are completely sensible. So what you basically laid out is that the federal sentencing system is completely irrational. Um, and you've made this presentation to this audience. Have you thought about taking this argument, you know, more to the broader public, such as going on TV, speaking <laughs> to the Senate Judiciary Committee, speaking to the House Judiciary Committee, you know, making these very excellent points that you've made to us today, but just taking it to a broader audience so that, you know, you can be impactful about it. Well, certainly fair question. I've written about it quite a bit. I haven't, I haven't kept my views a secret. I rarely do that. I have written about it quite a bit. I testified before the commission several times. Um, I testified once in Congress during the development of the guidelines to no avail. I testified to the commission, I think, three times to no avail. There's a question how far judges can or should go on reform proposals. I don't think we're barred from doing it. I just think we have to tread carefully. What I've suggested to the commissioners who say they're interested, and one or two of them have been the previous chairman, uh, Judge Patty Saris, was interested in simplification. The current chairman, and I think the current deputy chairman, are interested. I've urged them they should go to the chairs of the Judiciary Committee quietly, not at a big public hearing. They should go to the chairs of the House and Senate Judiciary Committee, majority minority leaders, and explore with them what's doable. I think that's probably better than federal judges trying to do it or the Federal Judges Association as a group. I think the best route is from the commission leadership to the leadership of the committees. If they want to hear from me, I, I, I won't be bashful, but I think that's the better route other than writing, and I have written about it extensively. But I thank you for your suggestion. Any other questions? Well, we're going to have a drink with the judge for Actually, a I have time. a question on behalf yes. of the City Bar Association. Absolutely. Your Honor, do you recommend that we as an association um, press Congress for what is doable, or should we be pressing for what you think would make the most sense, which is not necessarily one and the same? 
I, well, I think in all reform efforts, I tend to favor what's doable than the best. As they say, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. That has been said many times. I think it's true, particularly in uh, trying to achieve legislative reform. But I would urge you the same thing I said to the, the, the gentleman here. I don't think just a public statement from the association is the way to do it. I think, as the president of the Bar Association, and perhaps in league with maybe the president of the New York State Bar, or uh, uh, one or two leading district attorneys, if they're like-minded, and one or two public defenders, a small delegation should, be, should try to get an audience with leaders of the congressional committees, quietly. Don't go public with it. Because you're not trying to embarrass them, you're not, and you're not trying to be, you'll, you'll be misperceived. They'll say, oh, you're trying to, you're, you're softies, you're liberals, you're trying to weaken it. You, you don't want to be in that box. You want, you want to be able to say, there are certain reforms you can make, and you should make, and try to approach them quietly and see, test the waters with them. I think that's better than a proclamation. But I'm afraid the proclamation is not going to do it. A lot of people have criticized the guidelines. A lot of judges have. Some judges have resigned with a blast at the guidelines and said, they're terrible, I can't live with this anymore, I'm going to go join Skadden or, <laughs> <laughs> or some equally prestigious firm. But I think the quiet approach, I think you'd be very influential as the leader of a major bar association to do it quietly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you again. We're done? Okay, thank you. Thank you.